Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase, every day. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hide your children. Hi, I'm Josh Levine, Slate's national editor, and this is Hang Up and Listen for the week of Thanksgiving, November 21st, 2022. On this week's show, we'll talk about the U.S. men's national team's 1-1 draw against Wales in their World Cup opener. We'll also discuss FIFA continuing to FIFA in the opening days of the World Cup in Qatar. And we'll assess the early season woes of the Golden State Warriors and the Los Angeles Lakers, as well as Kyrie Irving's return to the Brooklyn Nets. I'm in Washington, D.C., and I'm the author of The Queen and the host of the podcast One Year Season Finale, coming up this week with the show from our own Joel Anderson. Check it out. Hey, Joel. Oof. Hey. Oh, you starting with me? Are you going to start with me? Seems like a natural segue. Okay. Yeah, sure. Thanks for thanks for doing that. Sorry for skipping over you, Stefan. Uh, but yeah, we're done here. Uh, the episode should be out in a Another couple of days, and I'm just so glad to be done with it. <laughs> but I think, but I, I think people will enjoy it. A Thanksgiving uh, week treat for the whole family. It's a really great episode. Also, NDC not hosting one year episode at all, which we're going to have to <laughs> um, address with him off the air. It's uh, Stefan Fatsis. He's the author of the books Wild and Outside, Word Freak, and A Few Seconds of Panic. Hello, Stefan. Just waiting for an invitation. I mean. I'm sitting here, <laughs> just been waiting, 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 waiting. We should close a few, uh, a few loopholes from last week. One, I know people are wondering what happened in the Ivy League. No oh, four-way yeah. tie. No four-way tie. Penn held up its end of the bargain, Joel, beat Princeton. Harvard mm. could not beat Yale. That would have mm. that would have made a four-way tie. No, no tiebreakers, no playoffs in the Ivy League. So, alas, Yale is your your uh, sole Ivy League winner. I want somebody to explain to me one day why Harvard isn't better at sports. There's just no, there's no excuse for it. Pretty good at sports, actually. Are they? Really? Yeah, they're pretty good at sports. Well, maybe I'm just, maybe they're not good at the sports I care about. (laughs) No one's going to be pretty good. No one's going to be, you know, good at football in the Ivy League. Deion Sanders to Harvard? Never know. Yeah. The other was, uh, you know, we got to talk about TCU this week. I know Joel was uh, was watching TCU. Not football though. Women's soccer team made it to the Sweet 16 of the NCAA tournament. I'm impressed. I mean, we 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 have a great, robust, deep athletic program. Great baseball team, better than uh, Harvard. Volleyball team got a new coach. It's good out there. Basketball team, Sweet Six. You know, uh, a team that's ranked in the top 20. It's a lot 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 to lot to like about TCU right now. Can't lie. In our Slate Plus segment, we are going to talk about the greatest snow football game that never was in Buffalo this week and our views in general on cold weather and football and snow. And Stefan might also talk to us about uh, his childhood football career. Uh, To listen to that, (laughs) you need to be a Slate Plus member. You get bonus 
segments on the show and others, ad-free shows. You get to support us, um, which gives you a warm feeling in your heart around Thanksgiving. Slate.com slash hangup plus. That's slate.com slash hangup plus. The U.S. men got off to a flying start in the first half of their World Cup opener on Monday night in Qatar, with Tim Weah slotting one home off an assist from Christian Pulisic to give the U.S. MNT a 1-0 halftime lead over Wales. But that advantage wouldn't hold up as Wales mostly dominated the second half and got the break they needed when Walker Zimmerman plowed through Gareth Bale in the box. Bale drove home the penalty, and at the final whistle, it was one all in a game the U.S. will likely regret not hanging on to with a matchup against England coming on Black Friday. Joining us now from Austin, Texas, is Eric Betts, who's covering the World Cup for Slate. Welcome, Eric. Thanks, guys. So before the tournament, you wrote an optimist take and a pessimist take for Slate. This game seemed to have the optimist take and the pessimist take all neatly wrapped into a first half and a second half. What did you see in the game? Yeah, I think I think that's pretty accurate. I think anyone would look at that first half and think that that was, that was ideal. They, they were controlling the game. They were, it seemed like they had a good balance between kind of patience with Wales's deep defense and... Um, you know, intimidating center backs back there and um, then trying to, to get the ball forward when they spotted their chances, like like on the goal when Pulisic kind of picked up the pace and, and drove forward and made them make hard choices. So that was all good. And then the second half was obviously, I don't know, it felt like, felt a little bit like a young team kind of thing. Like, you know, Wales came back and the U.S. couldn't figure out how to grab hold of the game again. They struggled to to slow the ball down, to keep the Wales defense kind of off of them in the same way that they managed in the first half. They were they were always one step ahead in the first half with their passing, and this time, um, you know, the Wales midfield was a little tighter, a little closer in the center. It sort of felt like in the first half, Wales was almost a, you know a, just divided between defense and offense. There was no one in the midfield, and the U.S. midfielders just completely dominated the middle of, of the space. And then yeah, in the second half, it Wales turned it on and they, they lost it. It felt to me a little bit like the U.S. didn't quite know what to expect coming out of the locker room. They thoroughly dominated the first half. I mean, possession was more than 60%, I think, for the U.S. to about 30 for Wales. They controlled, as you said, Eric, the midfield. They were patient on the ball. They had wonderful build-up play. Not a lot of chances to score, but they converted the best one. And then in the second half, you know, I don't think anybody thought that, oh, the U.S. can just dictate the, the, the game the way they did in the first. But it felt like they weren't prepared for Wales to be aggressive, almost as if they thought Wales would come out and just basically play the same sort of, of defensive posture that they had played in the, in the first half, and that wasn't the case, and there were definitely some lapses, and I think there were a lot of tired legs toward the second half, um, middle of the second half. But ultimately, look, it was one bad decision by Walker Zimmerman to go after Gareth Bale in the box one bad split-second decision that ultimately decided the game. I mean, it's a lost opportunity for sure, and I'm sure that the players are going to be wishing they had all three points from that um, because they probably should have. But I'm going to take the glass half full here and say that that first half was about the best half we've seen from a U.S. national team in a very, very long time. And it felt to me like this is a team that can go out there and play with England on Friday, and they're going to need to play unbelievably well. Yeah, I, I think that 
that sounds accurate to me. It, it did, coming right out of the locker room, uh, beginning of the second half, you could see Wales was, was feistier. They were creating more chances, getting the ball forward faster, looking by far the more dangerous team. You're right, it really, it comes down to that one unfortunate moment by Zimmerman, because it did, for, you know, eight, ten minutes before the penalty, it did sort of feel like the U.S. was fighting back. They weren't dominating like they were in the first half, but it had changed into more of an even contest, a battle back and forth, you know, ball going end to end, and you're right, it was just, it was, it was ultimately on the scoreboard, it was the one silly mistake by Zimmerman. Um, he had plenty of time. Bale was not preparing to shoot. He was not, he did not have a ton of support. Uh, it just felt like, yeah, Zimmerman uh, ran out of patience with, with, you know, getting pushed back by Wales and, and tried to cut one out way too early and was, you know, kind of outsmarted by the, the wily veteran Bale. So, Eric, I'm um, come to this as, you know, uh, third in line in terms of uh, maybe my soccer knowledge here. And so, but the thing that I've always noticed um, been following the men's national team and, you know, looking at people tweet about it during games is that everybody kind of comes into the match with the understanding that for a college football analogy, that the U.S. men's national team is not Georgia, right? And then get surprised when they play a little more like, I don't know, Texas. And, now, and I'm, I'm looking at your piece published in Slate. It says, inconsistency is not inexcusable. Every team plays poorly some of the time. Many do so relatively often. The trouble for this iteration of the USNT is that it hardly ever wins a game in which it doesn't play well for the entire match. Is this not the capsule uh, <laughs> summation of what the hell just happened this afternoon? Yeah, I, I, I think that's fair. And I think that, you know, going on in the rest of that, I sort of talked about their inability to score goals and to create chances when they are not on the front foot, when they are not dominating. And yeah, if they could have, you know, put one of the set pieces on target when they were when they were getting overrun in early in the second half, that would have absolutely, you know, changed the game and maybe deflated Wales and, and totally given them a leg up on that. But they just never seemed to have much of a chance of doing that they you know they they need it feels like they need to be playing well and to be controlling things and to be having it go their way in order to score and and create chances and so you could see it um they were not they did not start getting those again until yeah it felt like they sort of took a little bit of control back in the midfield had a little bit more time on the ball for themselves things like that whereas i feel like some previous iterations of the U.S. men's national team um, sort of relish the opportunity to steal an opposing team's thunder, to, you know, be under all that pressure and then kind of release it with one great big pressure valve goal um, that changes the whole complexion of the game. And this one, they certainly didn't do it here. Yeah, I think that in games like this where there are not very many chances on either side, you're going to have an advantage, it could be decisive if you're able to generate a goal out of nothing, which Wales ultimately did. Wales did have one or two better chances than the one they ended up scoring on the penalty. There was an open header that went 
over the goal, we could be having a very different conversation. And Matt Turner made a fantastic save on another header that he deflected over the bar. And and Josh Sargent headed off the post. And so, you know, you're going to focus on these really small moments in a game like this that was not England 6, Iran 2. It's going to come down to a few, you know, moments. But, you know, Stefan, in, in the first half, my kind of takeaway on that, and it perhaps would have been my takeaway if the game ended one nothing or 2 nothing, is that this is the perfect opponent for a U.S. team that struggles against teams that press uh-huh. and the friendlies coming into the World Cup. They look terrible against any kind of pressure in the back. I think having Tim Ream definitely helped. Um, he was he played very well as a center back in, in sort of controlling the game and, and passing, and you felt very comfortable with him on the ball there. But with Wales kind of sitting back, it allowed the U.S., this very young team to get comfortable and you never felt in the first half like they were at risk of falling behind that at worst it was going to be zero zero this is a young team that is comfortable on the ball this is a skilled team Eunice Musa not being comfortable pressed not not comfortable being pressed and I think the simplest narrative in this game is that the U.S. fell apart uh or fell apart might be ungenerous but they look good when they're not being pressed and they look terrible when they are being pressed. And that yeah. that is what's going to be the, the story of this team throughout however long they're in the tournament. Well, and the other thing I think we can take away from this is that when all of the U.S.'s best players and everybody that I think you would put in that category played tonight, except today, except for um, for Gio Reyna, who for some reason we don't know yet was not subbed in when Jordan Morris was, which makes my, that got me very, very upset sort of at the end of the game not quite upset but curious um you know tyler adams who plays at leeds fantastic all game long he was the man of the match savior anthony robinson speed up the left wing um tim Weo was great on the right side Eunice musa in the middle you know who wasn't great christian pulisic i mean his corner except for the goal where he fed tim Weo with a beautiful ball slid through he was pretty bad on corner kicks and free kicks, and he felt tentative to me um, with the ball, um, particularly uh, going up against the, the the Welsh defense. I agree with that. I think he hit the first defender on the first two or three set pieces that he took yep. in the first half, just right into the first Wales guy. I think, yeah, uh, on the assist, he was pushing the pace, he was moving with the ball, he was, you know, forcing Wales to scramble. And that's where he's, where he's at his best, dangerous. but too often, yeah, but too often he, you know, sort of gets the ball and stands there and kind of surveys it like he's at the top of the key, you know, waiting for people to move. And then when that happens and when he starts to run again, um, too often we see it, you know, poked away from behind or he's, you know, uh, the defense kind of catches up to him like that. So, yeah, I think the U.S. needs to see him push the pace more, kind of seek out those moments when he can. He, he's not always going to pick the right one necessarily sometimes he'll he'll go faster than his teammates are are ready for when maybe they need to slow it down but right now the balance is off on him yeah he's he's he needs to get get it moving more because we see how much more dangerous he can be when that happens as as was the case on the goal so eric they play england on friday and i'm not a person that believes in momentum right like i i know that this is not a real thing that actually happens but it's just hard to look at the way that people have sort of responded to the loss. Um, and the loss, Joe? 
We lost. Okay, the tie. It feels, okay, that's, there, there you go. It, it's, a, it's a tie that feels like, it's a draw that feels like a loss, uh, at least from the, the judgment of other people. I don't know, Stefan. You, just behind the curtain, everybody, before we came on, Stefan admitted that he was crestfallen. He was very hurt. So, like, that's, if it was just a draw, there'd be no need for you to be sad. Yeah, man. Now, that's a bummer. I mean, because it means so much. Because both of these teams now have to play England. They both conceivably could lose. And then it could conceivably come down to goal differential, assuming they both beat Iran. England beat Iran 6-2. Um, and you don't want to let it come down to that. I mean, the, the United States has never lost to England in a World Cup. Beat them in <laughs> 1950. Tied them in South Africa when I was in the stadium. And playing for a draw would not be the worst thing in the world. Not playing for a draw necessarily, but getting a draw out of the game on Friday. But England is so deep and so talented and looked pretty damn good for most of the game against Iran that it's going to be a very steep hill. And the U.S. got just totally beaten up in this game. You wouldn't think that McKinney would be healthy. Pulisic doesn't seem like he came out of that game with all of his limbs fully functioning. I mean, it's it's a great nobody believed in us kind of moment here because it's hard to think that like an England team that wasn't at all taxed, they're going to be at a, at a massive physical advantage as well as a talent advantage. So, the, you know, that's uh, the, the U.S. is going to have to come out and uh, prove, prove Joel wrong. That's what I'm saying, Eric. Is it as grim as it seems? That's what this feels like. And I'm, I'm looking at it and I'm like, well, you know, you know, I've looked at the FIFA rankings. I mean, they're not that much ranked that much higher than Wales. I mean, you know, nobody came into this thinking that USA is some sort of power. So I guess I'm just trying to, I'm always like, again, the, the, uh, the emotional, <laughs> uh, swings that come with following this team are always just so funny to me. So is it, is it as grim going into Friday as it seems at the moment? No, but barely. I, I mean, I, I think the big question about England coming into this tournament is that England had a dismal summer. They they have not they did not win. I think in their last six games coming into this tournament, I think it was three draws and three losses in the UEFA Nations League. And so yeah, the question coming into for England is well, like, are are they good still? Do they still have it? Can they still, yeah, uh, kind of turn it on when, when tournament time comes? They've done very well. As a team that made it to the finals of the Euros and the semifinals of the last World Cup, I mean, you looked up in the Iran game, and Iran was not good. I mean, this is a team that's distracted by the political um, turmoil at home. The players didn't sing the national anthem. There are other stuff on their mind, clearly. But when you look at the at the at the sideline, and they are about to sub in four guys, and those four guys are Marcus Rashford, Eric Dyer, Phil Foden, and Jack Grealish, you're like, oh my god, you know. And we're bringing Jordan Morrison off the bench. It's going to be a challenge. And I think you know, I wonder, Josh, whether Gio Reyna didn't play because Friday is so important. He's going to need. 60 to 75 minutes from Gio Reyna. <laughs> you know, someone's got to play if these guys are hurt, if McKenney's not feeling well, and if Pulisic doesn't look like he can play the entire game, it's going to be important to have full-strength players. Some fan fiction from Fatsis there. Yeah, so I, I think what will need to happen is that they'll need to be uh, opportunistic in that game. They'll need to take advantage of whatever chances they get, and that is... 
kind of a hallmark of U.S. men's national teams of the past, that they've played this kind of scrappy underdog role. And in this iteration of the of this team in this moment, that's not been kind of the persona that they've had, but they have a great opportunity. And what this result does is that it keeps everything on the table for them. It like keeps our hopes alive. And by Friday, we'll have talked ourselves into being really excited. And, you know, if they play a good opening 15 minutes, we'll get all of our hopes up and maybe our our hopes will not be shattered. Who's, who's to say? But I think, Joel, the reaction that, that you saw is that they were dominant in the first half. They had the lead. This is the first World Cup match in eight years. It's a young and exciting team. The young and exciting players contributed to that goal. Wales like barely even seemed like they were even try- even playing. It was just the U.S. guys like passing the ball back and forth. And the whiplash in the second half, just uh, I think everybody had gotten their hopes up so high. Why? I just explained it. <laughs> I just don't. Uh, I mean, again, you you did explain it, Josh. Very much. I, and I I heard what you said, but again. People know what this team is. They know how it is presently constituted. They know about the history of the USMNT's program. They also know that, like, soccer is two halves, like, in, in, in a game where the margins are so small. Like, I mean, one goal means so much, but it's also a very small margin. Anything can happen. Like, I just, <laughs> I can't imagine looking at one half of soccer knowing everything you're supposed to know about this team and the game itself and being like, yeah, man, can't wait. I'm going to tell you why, Joel, and I, here's exactly why. Because we have either talked ourselves into a little bit, but also we recognize the reality of this current iteration of players, which are this is the best group of American soccer players ever as a collective. And we haven't seen that collective perform together at the level that they performed in that first half. So for me, it was you know, the the really optimistic take on the first half was like, yes, this is how this group of unbelievably talented guys, many of whom play in the top levels for great teams in Europe, has the potential to play. And they are doing it, they're peaking at exactly the right moment. And God, I hope we can carry this forward. You come back down to earth in the second half because, yeah, look, Wales has players that are unbelievably world-class too. I mean, not as many as England, maybe not as many as the United States, but they are good. But what we saw in the first half was the fruition of the promise and the feeling. And this is what soccer often is about, Eric, right? It's the feeling that, okay, if we put this together, we can compete. And they put it together for 45 minutes. We were thinking with our hearts and not with our heads. We are inexperienced as World Cup fans now. It's been eight years for (laughs) most of us American fans since we've seen this team in a World Cup. And so, yeah, the moment was, as Stefan said, it was especially exciting. I mean, if if you were optimistic about this team coming in, then you were like, this is great. This is what they are capable of. If you were pessimistic about the team coming in, if you had worries about it, then you were like, hey, maybe this, you know, uh, this is far better than what I could have hoped for. So you know, maybe they can keep it going. Maybe they will, you know, just continue to strangle the Wales midfield and keep everything so under control that Wales cannot even threaten. And obviously, that's not what happened. You all talked all that shit. Maybe you guys should support the U.S. men's national team in the same way that I support uh, TCU. You know, just believe it. Don't believe it till you see it. (laughs) An important lesson for all of America from Joel Anderson. Eric, uh, thanks so much. You can read 
Eric Betts' coverage of the World Cup in Slate. We'll be linking to it. We'll be reading it. And we'll all obviously have our hopes up again for the first few minutes of the England match on Friday. Uh, Eric, thank you. Thanks, guys. Up next, FIFA is FIFA in Qatar. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase, every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch, subject to credit approval. Terms apply. The Men's World Cup Finals kicked off on Sunday with the host country, Qatar, completely outclassed in a 2-0 loss to Ecuador. If you were watching on Fox Sports, you would have enjoyed drone shots of al Bat Stadium rising majestically from the desert and multiple showings of a promotional ad about the greatness of Qatar. You also would have heard Fox Sports reporter Jenny Taft promoting her softball interview with a Qatari official. But when I walked inside Albait, I did understand the culture that the Qataris are so proud of. And just a couple days ago, I was fortunate enough to interview Hassan Al-Tawadi, the Secretary General of the Supreme Committee, who was instrumental in bringing the World Cup to his home country. He was very welcoming. And trust me, he is excited for the world to understand what Qatar has to offer. What Fox did not offer from Taft or anyone else from their elaborate waterfront set was, well, a discouraging word about this World Cup from Qatar's woeful treatment of the migrant workers who built the stadiums, roads, and hotels to the news that Qatar's authoritarian government at the last minute banned the sale of beer at stadiums, which led Ecuadorian fans to chant queremos cerveza during the match. Joel, I didn't even mention that half the stadium apparently emptied out long before the finish or the bizarro news conference in which FIFA boss Johnny Infantino declared, today I feel gay. If it wasn't already, it's clear that actual football matches won't paper over FIFA's craven decision to bring the World Cup to a tiny, rich, non-soccer nation. Yeah, I mean, I think that FIFA and Fox are counting on the same general malaise to human rights violations and general authoritarianism uh, sweeping the globe. That, you know, we've sort of gotten used to horrible things happening to people uh, all over this world and us sort of looking past that. And that, that, that even goes to some of the previous sporting events we've staged. I mean, Russia, China, whatever, right? Like, we know that these governments engage in things that we we say we don't support, but we're not, you know, FIFA and Fox said, hey, people still turn in and watch that stuff. So if we just keep forcing it on them, they probably won't do much about it. And they believe, in fact, they know that soccer fans care about soccer a lot more than they care about anything else when it comes to watching games. But like, that's that's not unique to soccer, right? Like I order packages from Amazon. I know what you know, what sort of worker rights violations are going on there. I, I, I buy coffee from Starbucks. Um, I know that 
they're cracking down on unionization efforts. I used to shop at Walmart. I watch and support college football, which, you know, I find to be a hugely corrupt racist enterprise that strips hundreds of millions of dollars in value from young black athletes and their families. But I watch it, right? Um, and so once we've gotten to the point that someone has committed the World Cup schedule to memory, sat down on their couch and cut on their TV, they're understanding that you've already accepted the bargain, that there's only so much that what's happening and being said on Twitter will filter through your information diet, that you won't even think about the Qatar Airways ads. You won't think about how those stadiums got made. Uh, you won't think about the gay players and fans who aren't willing to take the chances with the Qatari government that, say, Grant Wall will. You know, our, our friend Grant Wall, who uh, wore a shirt uh, in support of LGBTQ communities and was told he'd have to take it off. And think, hopefully he's okay and will remain okay. But they're, they're, they're counting, understandably so, on the idea, Josh, I think that the games are going to be on TV. We're going to watch that and the hell with anything else, right? Kim McCauley, the soccer writer, had what I thought was an interesting tweet, which was, my favorite thing about the World Cup is that it's basically reverse sport washing. The vast majority of the world had no opinion about Qatar 10 years ago and now hates them. It'll be really interesting to see if the bet that the Qatari government made here pays off. A $200 billion dollar bet. Yeah. And the thing about, you know, the politics and are we going to talk about the politics and all of the things that aren't soccer? Um, it's baked into this event in a way that um, in a lot of these events that we can and, sh and should criticize, it really isn't. Like it's to a degree here where like the fact that we're playing this event now instead of in the summer, like if you want to talk about that, then how can you talk about that without talking about the politics that went into this event? Um, you know, the whole reason that it's in Qatar is because of bribes and people have gone, you know, there's a huge Justice Department investigation of that. And so if you choose not to talk about that, um, then that's obviously a uh, uh, something that's inextricable from the tournament and so you're 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 making a choice there as well and then this armband controversy which i think is um it, it's a small thing but is just so um it, it so exemplifies everything about this tournament and the choices that you know big and small actors are, are making that's that um you know i think seven teams were going to wear armbands that said one love on them and then uh, FIFA said, if you do that, we'll give the player who's wearing the armband a yellow card. Then they're like, all right, I guess we won't wear them then. I mean. <sighs> but again, this didn't happen at the last second, the teams deciding to do this. FIFA knew that the teams, and these are seven European teams, including England and Wales and the Netherlands. The Netherlands were the first team to come up with the idea. Um, they had said they were going to do this in September. So the fact that this happened at the very last second, Josh, the thing that happened that, at the last second was saying that they would get yellow cards. Yeah, yeah, and similar to the beer thing, which happened at the at the, at the last, last second, second, which indicates that the Qatari government stepped in at the last second and said, "FIFA, you need to do something about this." And this, like the beer, and like so many other things, and particularly FIFA's own statements, which I want to get back to Infantino's crazy press conference. FIFA exploits politics when it's convenient for them to do so. They love to talk about 
how football has the power to change the world. You know, one of the justifications for bringing the World Cup to Qatar, for giving the World Cup to Qatar, bribes aside, was that this would help help Qatar come into the modern world, help the Middle East join the rest of the world in celebrating the game and becoming part of the global community. That's how FIFA justified, right, giving the the World Cup to Qatar. What FIFA actually does is drag the whole world down to its level. Yes, and that's the flip side of this. So it's the, it exploits the politics when it's convenient to do so. And then when it becomes thorny, it says, no politics, please let us just celebrate soccer now. And it exposes their hypocrisy more clearly than if they had done nothing and said nothing in the first place about how magnanimous and how you know FIFA deserves the Nobel Peace Prize. Well, so is this the end then of that fantasy, uh, that sort, that particular sort of romanticism that um, these sort of large sporting events, you know, the Olympics, the World Cup, um, whatever, that they can bring people together and that they can bring uh, countries into the quote you know, modern world or the modern era, right? Like, it wouldn't this, as much as anything else, finally show that that is a lie? You know, give truth to the, the idea that, like, no, man, like, no matter what you do, this is, we're just staging sports, we're just staging games here. These are just games. This is just sport. It's not going to fundamentally change anything about the way the host countries are run or the way the way they engage with the world. I mean, can anybody show me any evidence that hosting the the Winter Olympics changed anything substantively in Sochi or Beijing? Like, is there is there any proof that any of that has happened? Or are we going to continue to say that going forward from here on out? Right? You know, like it just—it seems like we should be smarter than that at this point. Yeah, I mean, I think that that myth has been shattered many Olympiads and. World Cups ago, and the people that are still trying to sell it to a, a populace that I think is is smarter than to swallow it are FIFA, the IOC, and the the one um, entity that I think has really shamed itself the most because there would be reason to expect more is Fox. I don't have like hugely high expectations, but like. NBC, I don't think, covered itself in glory, but they certainly did something that they, you know, didn't totally have their heads in the sand. In terms of covering the Winter Olympics in China, most recently. Yeah, I mean, but but the, the clip that we heard from Jenny Taft that you played in the intro, Stefan, I mean, that's an, that is embarrassing that this is an American media organization that's carrying water in a way that is really unnecessary. Like, I mean, they're taking money from Qatar Airways, so maybe it is necessary in that sense. But um, Telemundo has shown the way, like, which is a part of the NBC family of networks and has the Spanish language rights. Like, they're not behaving as obsequiously as Fox is. I mean, there are clips going around of Gary Lineker talking on British television um, and the kind of introduction to the games, just eviscerating Qatar. And uh, I guess, Joel, to your point, like, if we're all going to watch these games anyway, like, there's, I don't, I don't think any media organization 
is at risk of depressing its audience or suppressing its its audience size by saying what we all know to be true. Like if if you're going to get the audience anyway, then why don't you just tell the truth? Well, right, right. Why don't you just tell the truth? And why don't you just tell FIFA and the host country, Qatar, that we're going to do this? FIFA is, and the IOC similarly, depends on the hundreds of millions of dollars that American television networks give to them. There's, in, for the rights to broadcast these, these events, there's no reason that Fox couldn't do a segment about the laws in Qatar around LGBTQ rights. Um, there's no reason they couldn't do a segment about human, humanitarian complaints about migrant workers and their treatment. There's no reason for them to pretend that this is like a Potemkin World Cup. Um, it's similar can, to the they, NFL and its right, rights holders, where the power dynamics are just like strangely reversed, right. where these networks give the NFL like billions of dollars and are basically the only reason that the NFL can exist, and yet seem like, instead of them bossing the NFL around and saying what what they can and should be able to say, it works in the reverse. It doesn't make any sense like that these entities are willing to kind of cede all of the the power that they have um, with and getting seemingly nothing in return. Well, Josh, I mean, because once you've already made the decision, then I think Qatar or whoever else, these other entities, they know that they can call your bluff because you're not going to take the game away, right? You're not going to not broadcast. Because at that point, you've already, you've spent the money, you've made the commitment. And so I guess Qatar anybody can, can say, call anybody's bluff. And it's it's interesting to see who's actually... Yeah. Call in right. I guess guitar bluff would be unplugging the cables from the stadium. <laughs> or they're just like, you all don't need beer. Fuck that. And what are you going to do about it? You know, is but is Budweiser going to take away all their all their advertising money at this point? Like, do they think that you know FIFA is going to say, hey man, you guys better restore all that, or Fox is going to say, you guys better give them beer or or what? <laughs> and they know that the games are going to be played and the people want to see that. And so they, I think that they've correctly identified the fact that yeah, you can talk all that big stuff and you can make these sort of agreements, but once you're actually on the ground, once the games have gotten started, it's just like once you've agreed to play. It's like it's like the, the thing sort of in the NCAA where they talk about the players are going to strike or whatever. And it's just like, well, once they've they've got on the court and the games are going to get started, it's kind of hard to say what you're going to do. You've already sort of given up your leverage. You gave up your leverage when you said we're going to host these games in Qatar. Except that FIFA does have leverage. It could choose not to cave in to political pressure from an autocratic state that it awarded the right to host this global event that billions of people care about. Instead, we get FIFA president Gianni Infantino defending and apologizing for Qatar at this crazy press conference last week where he talked about how his working class parents emigrated to Switzerland from Italy. He said, and I still can't get over this, Today I feel Qatari. Today I feel Arab. Today, Today I, feel I feel African. African. Today I feel uh, gay. Today I feel disabled. Today I feel uh, a migrant worker. Of course, I'm not uh, Qatari, I'm not Arab, I'm not African, I'm not gay, I'm not disabled, I'm not really a migrant worker, but I feel like them because I know what it means to be discriminated, to be bullied, 
as a foreigner in a foreign country, as a child at school. I was bullied because I had uh, red hair and I had these red, how do you call them? Uh, freckles. 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 Sorry? Freckles. Freckles. Yes, yes, I don't even know the term. I was bullied, of course, for that. Just astounding. Homosexuality is against the law in Qatar. Migrant workers died building the World Cup. But yes, tell us about your red hair and how you call them freckles. But another clip from Infantino also deserves listening to. I think for what we Europeans have been doing in the last 3,000 years around the world, we should be apologizing for the next 3,000 years before starting to give moral lessons to people. He's right that the white West has plenty to apologize for, but Infantino's comments were designed to give Qatar a pass for its human rights violations, its backward laws, and also the corrupt way that it obtained this World Cup. And if you read about or, or watch what the Iranian team has been doing um, before their um, opening game, 6-2 defeat to England, players refusing to sing the national anthem um, in solidarity with the protest movement that's sprung up in the country after the Iranian Kurdish woman died in custody for the crime of not covering her hair. Um, and James Montague and The Athletic had a really good history of the Iranian team and protest and how the team has, you know, worn in the World Cup in the past green armbands in solidarity with protesters, has, um, you know, players have spoken out or not spoken out about women not being allowed in the in the stands of stadiums and you know there were there were calls to potentially ban Iran from the the tournament and just the way in which it, it's not just that politics is kind of woven in to the event it's like in Iran soccer is politics it's been at the center the the national team the players the the fans the protests around the games has been at the center of the country's history for the last four decades. And I think it's more kind of stark and clear in Iran than in other countries. But um, it it's the same kind of all around the world. And so the kind of enforced naivete or the kind of telling us that what we know to be true isn't true and that we're stupid for, for thinking it, it's just kind of being treated like children. And Fox is obviously consenting to that. Um, but, you know, it's it's not just that it's important. It's not like just, just that it's spinach, Joel. It's interesting. <laughs> like, it's news. It's, new, it's news and it's fascinating. And you kind of have a deeper understanding and appreciation of the sports themselves, if you know everything that's kind of roiling uh, around. And Joel, and so I think it's that, also, it, it, it has the, the opposite effect of what is intended. Sports are interesting, not just because of what happens on the field. They're interesting because of how they're woven into the dynamic of society and politics and world events. And to pretend that that's not the case when we can see the reality in front of our eyes is what makes these organizations so laughable. 
Yeah, I mean, I think you all make really good points there. I guess the the thing is, is that we can be of two minds about it, right? That this could be a, a huge multi-billion dollar effort at sports washing, which thus far, you know, the Qatari government seems to not be all that interested in because they've been so defensive publicly and engaged the in, in FIFA uh, in joining them in their defensiveness. Or you can use sport uh, in much the same way as the Iranian uh, national team has to shine light on atrocities or injustice around the globe, right? And to that, that latter point, the thing that I would ask is, do you think any migrant workers that are there in Qatar or their family members who they had somebody that left India and went to Qatar to help build that stadium, and now they don't know where they are. You know, that, that person has been disappeared or whatever. Or do you think, you know, gay people or any other persecuted peoples around the world feel better for soccer happening somewhere? Um, I just always think that that is a stretch. And, you know, like none of us are really prepared to do what is required to make a real stand here. And it's questionable whether or not, you know, not participating in the event at all or not supporting it all would do anything. But I just think that we want this to be to to mean something, to mean more than what it is. But at the end of the day, it's just soccer and we're just watching soccer and we're sort of papering over the rest of it. And it makes it makes us feel good. I mean, I, it's the same thing. Like I, when I talk about football and I say, well, I got to acknowledge that concussions are a real problem here, uh, but I'm still going to watch it. Right. And I think that's just the rest of us right now. Like we know that we're sort of limited in what we can do as actors in the world. And so we sit by idly by and, and, and sort of watch this. And I'm looking at right now soccer and I, and I cannot help but think, man, a lot of people died to make that fucking stadium, man. And <laughs> what do you know? What are we supposed to do about it? I don't know. Up next, we'll talk about Kyrie Irving, the Golden State Warriors, and the start of the NBA season. Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The NBA's reigning champions won their first road game of the season Sunday. To pull it off, the Golden State Warriors needed Klay Thompson's best game of the season. Thompson scored 41 points, including 10 three-pointers, and the Warriors 127-120 win over the Houston Rockets. Golden State had lost its previous eight road games of the season before knocking off the league's worst team, Sunday. But if the NBA playoffs started today, they wouldn't even qualify for the play-in game in the Western Conference. Golden State is 8-9, and nine, good for 11th in the West. Also in position to miss the postseason in the West, the Los Angeles Lakers, who at 5-10 and 10 have the second worst record in the conference. But they've won three in a row with LeBron James out with an adductor strain and Anthony Davis finally looking the part of a superstar. Another super team off to a slow start is the Brooklyn Nets, who have the same 8-9 and nine record as the Warriors, but have recently gotten a couple promising games from Ben Simmons. 
They've also welcomed back Kyrie Irving from an eight-game suspension for failing to apologize for sharing anti-Semitic material on social media. But Josh, uh, that's a mouthful. Let's uh, talk about the Warriors first. Steph Curry rarely played better, which is a crazy thing to say. He's averaging 32, 6, and 7 on shooting splits of 53, 45, and 90. And yet the Warriors are still struggling. Who's to blame? The Warriors starting lineup is as good as it's always been, as it's ever been. And it seems like they're just having a lot of trouble integrating the younger players who are supposed to be their salvation during the long regular season. Um, You know, the 82 games is a strain for an older team like the Warriors or like the Lakers. The Nets, I guess, are older too. Um, And so you need a lot of depth to make it through um, players that wouldn't necessarily play a huge role in the playoffs, but can get you to the playoffs. And the Warriors had this young crew that they were relying on. They got rid of, you know, they didn't necessarily want to, but for salary cap, luxury tax reasons, you know, Otto Porter is no longer there. Gary Payton II is no longer there. But they had these reinforcements of Moody, Kaminga, Wiseman, and those guys are not playing very well. Um, And anytime that the starting five uh, is not on the floor, it seems like the Warriors go completely in the tank. But they're also really bad defensively, I think, apart from even the younger players. We can't just blame that on James Wiseman, who seems like is just not very good at basketball at the moment. Um, But if we were to broaden out a little bit beyond the Warriors' particular issues, Stefan, um, the thing that's so fascinating about the NBA this year is that um, you've got the Jazz, the Blazers, and the Kings at first, third, and fifth in the West. You've got the Pacers and the Wizards, top six in the East. Um, some of these teams, like I think the Blazers and Kings wanted to be good. Um, some of them, it seemed like, were tanking. What, what, are, what is it, bricking for Vic, Joel? Yeah, brick for Vic. And it just seems like the standings are topsy-turvy in a way that they really haven't been in the NBA maybe in our lifetimes. Um, it's obviously early in the season, but the storyline with the NBA, I think accurately, has always been the teams with the superstars, the teams with the best players, and the teams you kind of think are going to be good going into the season, barring injury, are going to be good. But this year, no one would have predicted these standings, and it's really, really interesting. It's, it is really, really early, as you pointed out, though. It's, you know, we're barely, what, a fifth of the way and a little over a fifth of the way into the season. Um, the teams that, the big-name teams that are bad could be bad for a lot of reasons. I mean, it's partly that the young players on the Warriors um, aren't performing to the level that, you know, the Warriors hoped they would when they didn't go sign some reinforcements in the offseason for whatever reasons. Um, at the same time, relying on three aging superstars also is problematic, and they are aging. 35 for Curry, and I think 33 and 33 for Thompson and Draymond Green. Um, relying and, on that, on one of those aging superstars seems to actually be working out quite well. <laughs> yeah, well, but you need the others if you're going to not be 8 and 9. If you prefer being, you know, 13 and 4, you're going to need everybody playing better. Um, and that's certainly the case with the Lakers. It's certainly the case with the Nets. It's certainly the case with the Clippers. Um, you know, we've talked about super teams in the past, Joel, uh, is it a stretch to say, well, yeah, maybe super teams aren't so great 
anymore because there are there's more depth or or just there are more players that are in that sort of second tier of goodness and near greatness that allow teams like the Pacers and others to you know to succeed where we would have written them off in the past. I definitely think that the the depth of the league is coming coming through now and so the teams that would typically be bad or just young are more difficult to beat. I mean the Warriors beat the Rockets on Sunday night and the Rockets and the Pistons have, you know, the be- the worst records in the league, but the Rockets are not a bad team. Like they're just a young team, but they're not bad. They've got a lot of talent and it's really easy to lose to a team like that. I mean the OKC Thunder for instance, they're trying to not <laughs> they're trying to brick for Vic- Victor. Uh, they're not a very good team now running a few Brichter years. Brichter for Victor. Doesn't have as much of a ring to, <laughs> to it. Was it quite as good? That's fine. That's fine. But it's possible that the Thunder have one of the league's MVP candidates in Shea Gilgis Alexander. And actually, I was just looking at the standings. They're a game behind the Warriors. That's a team that was supposed to have been, again, tanking or whatever. And I was Everybody's so, so tightly packed in the West right now. Yeah. Oh, and actually, let me just... Like if I if I gave you this this grouping of four teams and I told you, is this the top four or the bottom four in the playoff standings? You, you probably couldn't guess. But the eighth seed, Philadelphia 76ers at eight and eight. The ninth seed, the Brooklyn Nets, eight and nine. The tenth seed, the Knicks, eight and nine. I mean they're the Knicks, so whatever. But and the Heat, the Heat were conference finalists last year, uh, and they're seven and ten, and they're an eleventh seed. So. Yeah, man, the, the the league is sort of weird right now. I, and so just to kind of bring it back, I think one of the things, too, is that in addition to the depth of the league, we've devalued the regular season in the NBA so much that it's just tough to read too much into them anymore. Um, and it sort of dates back to the Warriors going 73-9 and nine and losing in the finals or those Cavs and Spurs teams resting and doing load management. Like, it's early. Some teams seem to be bad. Some teams seem to be good. But we won't really know what these teams are until their stars are all back and playing regularly, you know, playing 35, 40 minutes a game. So it, it, there do seem to be some patterns right now. The, the older, you know, marquee teams of the past few years seem to be struggling out of the gate. But I don't think it's going to stay that way long term because I think a lot of these teams have realized the early part of the season really doesn't matter in the whole scheme of things. Right. I don't. Yeah, I don't necessarily agree with that. I mean, the hmm. NBA um, regular season has actually never been more important, um, at least in uh, since they expanded the the playoffs, because you can now there are only six guaranteed spots in each league. So the fact that the in each conference, the fact that um, the West is so tightly packed means you know the Warriors are three and a half games behind Utah uh, for first place while also being in 11th. So they're not really in a dire. Yeah, they're, they're like a week and a half from being in first or second. Sure. But you can't like screw around for the entire regular season and expect to, um, you know, make it in. Like there, there are consequences. And I think that's what the league, Adam Silver, um, were trying to pull off with the, Plan tournament that there are advantages to locking in not just a top four seed to get home court advantage, but a top six seed. And you know, there's plenty of time for whether it's Utah or Indiana to you know trade guys away. But like you, you mentioned, the the Rockets. Like I watched the Pacers play um, the Pelicans the other day, mm-hmm. 
Tyrese Halliburton is unbelievably yeah. good. You know, he's averaging, I think, a double-double in points and assists. 21-11 and I think like six broads. He has, he's putting up Chris Paul numbers right now. Ben Matherin, the rookie, coming off the bench, bench scoring 20 is like um, a, a ready-made NBA, if not a star, like a, a really good piece on a winning team. And then they've got these guys that the Lakers have allegedly been, you know, thinking about trading for for forever, Buddy Heald and Miles Turner, who are really good NBA players. And this is a team that going into the year, everyone was saying was going to be the worst team or one of the worst teams in the league. I mean, Utah, similarly, they got Larry Markinen, um from Cleveland, who now looks like a superstar. And, you know, it, it's the Utah thing. It kind of, it shows that if you get rid of Rudy Gobert and Donovan Mitchell, the like, players that you get back are not going to necessarily be bad enough for you to then become bad. And they play really hard. They move the ball. Um, you know, there is, we, we've seen kind of what the Spurs can do when you have that sort of team ethos and a t- team that has like Hall of Fame level players like Manu Ginobili. But um, with yeah. Utah, and, and this is like a regular season thing, it, uh, I think there's a sense that their shit won't work in the playoffs or their shit won't work when they trade all of their players away. But oh, are you telling me the postseason is different from the regular season? The team's taken a little bit more seriously. Like, er, earlier, earlier, earlier. You got to get there, though. But there's a certain amount that you can accomplish in the regular season um, with a core of like good players who play hard and, un- and unselfishly. And I think it's great for the NBA that there are these scrappy teams that um, are making life kind of miserable and aren't allowing the star-laden teams to coast through the regular season. Like, isn't it more entertaining to have the standings be all topsy-turvy and to have these, you know, I'm about a million times more interested in following the Jazz than I was, you know, on day one. Yeah, I mean, I think it's better when there's a Golden State Warriors team that everybody can sort of, uh, you know, the the great teams. But weren't we stipulating that the Warriors weren't going to try? Like, it's it's not like it's not like the Warriors were going to go for seventy three. You said so yourself. So in that universe, I think there's two pieces of that though, Joel. It's like it's not like there isn't a Golden State Warriors team or a Lakers team or a Celtics team, um, the the good teams are still there and we're still interested in them because of their current dysfunction. I mean, there's a little bit of a soap opera storyline happening right now where fans are going to continue paying attention to them. This isn't like, you know, the Warriors pre-Dynasty or the Lakers during their tank year recently um, or the Knicks for the last decade and a half. I mean, there's like genuine interest in seeing what happens with these teams. And you combine that with what Josh was talking about, genuine interest, rooting interest, fan interest, curiosity in seeing how these teams with a lot of really good NBA players are managing to say, fuck it, we're going to go for it. And we're going to be, you know, th- these guys are all competing for their paychecks, right? Um, so this is, does not surprise me that, you know, we're seeing these unusual formations of teams, particularly with injuries and aging and roster construction that is required in the super team era. Um, and now we just got to see how it changes, right? We want to see if the Nets are going to be good, if Ben Simmons genuinely is back, um, if Kyrie Irving will shut up and play basketball, um, it's, it's shut up and dribble. 
that you could put it that way. That's a more eloquent way of putting it, Josh. Thanks. Um, so I do think that this actually creates interest throughout the NBA. Plus, you've got the interest in the very bottom of the league because of the desire to get the number one draft pick next year to go for Vic. I, I suppose. I don't know. I mean, I, I'm a person uh, like many people uh, that get older. I don't I can't watch every NBA game. So I'm not sitting around waiting to watch Laurie Markkinen. Uh So <laughs> <laughs> no, no offense to the jazz. But I mean, I've, I, you know, you have a finite amount of time and you want to see great teams, great games. And what I tend to think the NBA, my memories of it over the course of my life, uh, or through the great teams, the teams that are sort of transcendent. So you think of the Bulls, you think of the Shaq Kobe Lakers. Nobody, like, has anybody, and uh, you know what? I guess I, I guess I'm just going to take a shit all over the San Antonio Spurs. Nobody is ever like, man, I've, I really remember watching those Spurs teams. That was amazing. Oh, people do crazy. say that. Oh, people nah, say that. Come on. Nah, basketball nah, basketball nah, hipsters nah, say that. Indiana Pacers in the 90s. I mean, you know. I don't think, no, I, don't, I don't think, who said that? People said that about the Davis brothers, watching the Davis brothers and Haywood Workman. <laughs> Are you serious? Uh, Indiana fans did. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, I want to see... Rick elite. Smith's footwork in the paint. He was pretty good. I, Same I, 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 Rick, Rick, Rick Smith. Rick Smith's, uh, but, but no, I, I prefer to see these great teams. And I think the regular season, despite what Josh says, makes it a little more difficult because you very rarely see all these teams with their great players all at once going for it. You know, people will be missing games or whatever. But, I, you, you, you know, uh, you did mention the, uh, the drama piece of this. Uh, Stefan, and as we as you mentioned, Kyrie came back last night for the Nets, and he was greeted. Uh, I, you know, Kyrie did say that he had an army with him previously, and uh, looks like outside <laughs> um, of the Barclays Center, an an army of some sort showed up to support him. To be clear, they weren't supporting the fact that he apologized for anti-Semitism. They were supporting his original pre-apology views. Black Hebrew Israelites showed up in force outside of the game. Uh, and, and so I know there's a piece of this where we can talk about the Jalen Brown tweet supporting them. But I previously had said I thought this was untenable, that there is no way that he could or should be still playing for the Nets. And I'm wrong. Um, do you guys think when this season ends that Kyrie Irving will still be on that roster playing for this team? Seems that way. Seems that way. Yeah, and I think... Um the Simmons piece of it, that he has looked increasingly functional as a, a player, um, complicates things vis-a-vis -vis their uh, trajectory. I mean, I guess uh, complicates is the wrong word. It like makes it seem like they're kind of more plausible, if not as a contender, mm -hmm. as like a team that will win, at least be functional on the court and, and win games. And there was a certain kind of like lightness to them with Kyrie away that Durant seemed like he was having fun, even as he was kind of like insulting his teammates, um, saying like, you know, you look at this lineup, what do you, ex what do you expect out of us? Like, I, I think, <laughs> I guess the possibilities are that Kyrie says and does something, um, that changes things. I guess the possibility of that is probably high, but if, Kyrie keeps his mouth shut, then I don't see any reason why he wouldn't be on that team yeah. uh, at the end of the year. But I think the possibility of him being unable to keep his mouth shut, as you said, Josh, is really high. I mean, in that same news conference after the game, 
you know, he, well, first, before the game, he had a news conference and he sort of apologized. I mean, he issued an apology and then he was sort of not super convincing, you know, saying that I was rightfully defensive, that there was an assumption that I could be anti-Semitic or that I meant to post the documentary to stand side by side with all the views of the documentary. And, uh, you know, after the game, he said, you know, I want to be on a platform where I can openly share how I feel without being harshly criticized. And then he was asked about the black Israelites demonstration. And he said, that's a conversation for another day. I'm here to just focus on the game. This could go any number of bad ways in the next week, day, month. Right. I mean, yeah, I mean, think about it. I mean, at what point has Kyrie been a a, a stabilizing factor there in Brooklyn since this all happened? You know what I mean? Like, you can't count on him to show up to games. Um, you can't count on him to do what it takes in terms of taking the the vaccine and now this. So yeah, this, the season is long. Uh, he's going to have to face these mics over and over again. I think the odds of him playing along and doing what he needs to do to make this right are really low. And he talked about filing a grievance against the Nets for his suspension. I mean, I mean, I I, I guess I think you guys are right, but the factor you're not considering is the Nets' willingness to just pretend like. It's not happening. Right. Like he, he could say or do any I, number of things, and the Nets I, could just like. I don't think that's. Go- I don't think that's going to be possible, man. I don't think that's going to be possible. But I guess we'll find out. But I just, I, there's, if he, if he continues to engage and dabble in this sort of anti-Semitism, I don't think there'll be any way for the for for them to to pretend it's not happening. Like it, I think at that point that they will make sure he's gone. Yeah. Last thing, Stefan needs to apologize for throwing the Celtics into the chaos. Mix, they're good. There's no chaos. Imeo Doka's gone. It's all good. They're playing well. Okay. Apology. Apology made. And now it is time for Afterballs, sponsored by Bennett's Prune Juice, endorsed by Kenny Sailors, who says it was okay. Prune juice. Snacks are not bad. My parents used to give me prune juice as a kid, by the way. So yeah. uh, anyway, so uh, this week, I want to give some shine to an old friend of the show, Otito Obanaya, who joined us in August uh, 2020, right in the middle of the pandemic, before it was clear if college football was going to play any games that season. And he and his teammate, Alicia Guidry, uh, came for a conversation about the Pac-12 We Are United movement, which was going to demand uh, better testing protocol and conditions for players if they return to play. Can't say much about what happened if the league did what it was supposed to, but they it did end up playing that season. And you know what? I kind of lost track of Otito, uh, a Houston native, but last night, watching a few minutes of the... Uh, Sunday night game between the L.A. Chargers and the Kansas City Chiefs. And Otito, our boy, he was out there playing, man. I didn't realize that he was a fifth-round draft pick uh, just just this spring. And seems like he's doing pretty well. He's, you know, getting some playing time, racked up a few tackles and stuff. You know, he's early in his career. Uh, so I, I I presume that he's got a long ways to go. But shout out to our boy Otito. Um, this he was great on the show. We loved. We him. really enjoyed him. And I remember I remember after the conversation, I was like, man, I really like that guy. It's not just because he's from Houston. So <laughs> anyway, Otito, this is for you. So Josh, 
What is your Otito Obanaya? The major pro tennis tours have finished up for the year, giving the players approximately zero weeks to rest before everything kicks into gear again in Australia in January, where, incidentally, the unvaccinated Novak Djokovic will be allowed to play after his ban on entering the country for three years was overturned by the Aussie immigration minister. Djokovic is going to be the favorite to win his 10th Australian Open and 22nd major overall, the 22nd would tie him with Rafael Nadal. Um, and this past weekend, he won his sixth ATP Tour Finals, beating Casper Ruud in the final. Uh, still very good at tennis, that guy. Um, but I want to talk about the American men, who had a very good year, at least by recent American men's tennis standards, which have been extremely low. Taylor Fritz made it into the top 10. He's the first American man to be ranked that high since John Isner in 2019. He made it to his first Grand Slam quarterfinal this year, losing to Nadal at Wimbledon in five sets. Um, he also snuck into the tour finals where he made the semis before losing to Djokovic in two very tight tie breaks, did not look out of place there. Um, our fave, Francis Tiafo, made it into the top 20, made his first Grand Slam semi, losing to the phenom Carlos Alcaraz. Another three Americans, hang up and listen guest, Otito Obanaya, no, uh, hang up and listen guest, <laughs> Maxime Cressy, as well as Riley Opelka and Brandon Nakashima, all won ATP tournaments this year. And Nakashima just won the end-of-year next-gen finals for young players. And the good news for him there is that the three previous cha champions, Alcaraz, Yannick Sinner, and your guy, Stefan? Stefanos Tsitsipas. They all immediately became really big stars after winning the next-gen finals. So look out for Brandon Nakashima in 2023. And that's not all. There are 12 American men in the top 65 in the rankings, which is by far the most of any country, and nine of them are 25 or younger. And that does not include the player that I want to focus on here, a guy we should all be very excited about, who will make his top 100 debut this week. His name is Ben Shelton, and he just turned pro a few months ago after winning the 2022 NCAA title for the Florida Gators. To illustrate how far he's come, as recently as July 23rd, he was tweeting the following, really need to find someone to fill my bedroom in my two-by-two -two apartment in Gainesville so I can get out of my lease. Maybe some retweets would help. Then three days later, he had to tweet it again, this time adding, really not trying to pay for two places, hit my messages. A few weeks after that, in his second ATP tournament, he absolutely destroyed one of the best players in the world, the aforementioned Casper Ruud. And this month, the 20-year-old Shelton, he just turned 20 uh, in October, became the youngest player ever to win three titles in three consecutive weeks on the ATP Challenger Tour, the level just below the main tour. On the court, Shelton is a lefty with a huge serve and a huge forehand, but he also moves extremely well. Um, there are some uh, amazing passing shots he had, including to win one of those challengers. The match point was a crazy running passing shot. He's also got a huge smile and a lot of charisma, and he is a second-generation player. His dad, Brian Shelton, made the fourth round of Wimbledon in 1994 and peaked at number 55 in the rankings, which it's looking like Ben will exceed very soon. And Brian was also Ben's coach at the University of Florida. Second-generation athletes are not at all rare in pretty much any sport. In American men's tennis, Sebastian Corda is the son of Peter Corda, who reached number two in the rankings. But what's different here is that the Sheltons are black. And given how underrepresented black Americans have been in tennis until the last couple of decades, and somebody can correct me on this if I'm wrong, I believe that Ben Shelton is the first ever second-generation black American tennis star, which is kind of extraordinary, even though it makes sense when you think about it. 
Hopefully there will be a lot more to come. No pressure, Alexis, Olympio, Hanian Jr. But Ben Shelton is extraordinary on his own. And I think we'll be enjoying his career for a nice long time. And no pressure on a third generation of Shelton's. I think we can appreciate um, the second generation star for now. And I want to say here that take this to the bank on Ben Shelton's future success because Josh is really like the best scout of next-gen tennis stars that I know of. I hadn't really heard of Ben Shelton before now, and now I know he's going to be You're all in. in the mix. Man, you really, I mean, you 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 knew how to, to hook me there. I was like, all of a sudden, I'm like, oh, that's starting to Google and everything else. Uh, I'm, it's not a surprise. Yeah, Joel was like looking at TCU <laughs> updates. <laughs> suddenly, <laughs> suddenly, what? oh my God, start Googling this guy. What? Yeah. You, looked, He's you looked interested when I was talking about the tweets, even before you knew uh, anything from the end. <laughs> well, I mean, because can, can we not all relate to what it's like to break a lease and not want to pay for rent in two places? So that's very understandable. I, I would love to know what his rent was in Gainesville, though. Uh, as somebody who lived in Tampa a couple hours south, uh, spent some time in Gainesville, couldn't have been that much money. So hopefully he's, hopefully he's going to start making that real, that real ATP money, man. Yeah. And like I mentioned, a lot of times a guy with a serve as big as he has, they're not particularly mobile. And he, and also just being left-handed is a huge advantage mm-hmm. um, because, um, you know, players aren't used to playing against the lefty. So big lefty serve and mobile, he's going to be really tough to beat. And with all the success on the Challenger Tour, he now gets into the Australian Open, into the main draw. He doesn't have to go through qualifying. And at one of these challengers, uh, the guy he beat, Chris Eubanks, who's a good friend of his, said in his, like, runner-up speech, like, he said to the crowd, like, hey, crowd of like Knoxville or wherever it is, you're never going to see this guy here again. Like, he's never going to be in the in the minors. He's just going to be on the main tour. So we'll see if... He's a big guy too, right? Josh, I'm tall, not huge, but he's like 6'4 or something. He's a dude. He is a dude. <laughs> he, he wanted to play football. Apparently, his first sport was football, and then they guided him into tennis, which, good good move. <laughs> if, you, if you can make it without getting hit in the head, uh, if you're making a sport that get hit in the head, you should try to do it. So That is our show for today. Our producer is Kevin Bendis. To listen to past shows and subscribe or just reach out, go to slate.com slash hangup, and you can email us at hangup at slate.com. And don't forget to subscribe to the show and rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. For Joel Anderson and Stefan Fatsis, I'm Josh Levine. Remember Zalmo Beatty, and thanks for listening. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.